Shall we pray? Our Father in heaven, this is your word. Holy Spirit, show us Jesus in these precious words so that we might rejoice in him. Well, who are we reading about? I'd like just to refresh our minds with the last verse of the previous chapter, which says, May our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who loved us and by his grace gave us eternal encouragement and good hope, encourage your hearts and strengthen you in every good deed and word. As for other matters, brothers and sisters, pray for us that the message of the Lord may spread rapidly and be honoured just as it was with you. And pray that we may be delivered from wicked and evil people, for not everyone has faith, but the Lord is faithful, and he will strengthen you and protect you from the evil one. We have confidence in the Lord that you are doing and will continue to do the things we command. May the Lord direct your hearts into God's love and Christ's perseverance. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, we command you, brothers and sisters, to keep away from every believer who is idle and disruptive and does not live according to the teaching you receive from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to follow our example. We were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's food without paying for it. On the contrary, we worked night and day, laboring and toiling, so that we would not be a burden to any of you. We did this not because we do not have the right to such help, but in order to offer ourselves as a model for you to imitate. For even when we were with you, we gave you this rule, the one who is unwilling to work shall not eat. We hear that some among you are idle and disruptive. They are not busy, they are busy bodies. Such people we command and urge in the Lord Jesus Christ to settle down and earn the food they eat. As for you, brothers and sisters, never tire of doing what is good. Take special note of anyone who does not obey our instructions in this letter. Do not associate with them or in order that they may feel ashamed. Yet do not regard them as an enemy, but warn them as you would a fellow believer. Now may the Lord of peace himself give you peace at all times and in every way. The Lord be with all of you. I, Paul, write this greeting in my own hand, which is the distinguishing mark in all my letters. This is how I write. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. Well, let me uh, lead us in prayer again. Heavenly Father, you are good. Your word is true. All your ways are just and right. Open our eyes that we would see how wonderful are your words and soften our hearts and transform us so that we will bring glory and honour to Christ as obedient servants. Amen. Well, uh, in this passage, uh, what we're going to do is uh, the first section, we're just going to kind of touch on and then move through uh, fairly quickly uh, to the second section. Uh, you've got a little outline there on the back of your reading and you'll notice uh, we had a printer malfunction and some of the words are missing. 
And so uh, kids, especially, I did this for you guys. I know you've got your little packs. If you're listening real hard, you'll be able to figure out what the words are as we go and, and fill them in. So I'm making you work at it this morning. Um, now, I wonder, did anyone see that, uh, that video from that Norwegian cruise liner recently that hit the iceberg? You ever see that? There was a, a Norwegian cruise ship just a couple of months ago uh, and it hit an iceberg. And the thing is that, as, as you know, that every single person in the ship's thinking the exact same thing, right? What are they thinking, kids? Ship hits an iceberg, they're thinking? Titanic, that's right. And, uh, but in the video footage, as they're coming up to the iceberg and they, and they first hit, you actually can't even see anything in the water. It's just this tiny, tiny, when you look really hard, there's this tiny, tiny little spot. But we know, don't we, guys, uh, with the thing with icebergs is they can be tiny on top, but under the surface they could be a huge problem, can't they? Now, thankfully, the ship was okay. Uh, it was just a little fella. But at the end of Paul's letter to the Thessalonian church, Paul addresses an issue that for churches is a bit like an iceberg. At first, it seems kind of small or like not much of an issue on the surface but underneath it's actually quite big and quite deadly and it's the issue of idleness. Now as I've spent time uh, working through not just two Thessalonians but also uh, one Thessalonians uh, this past week, I realised that actually this issue of work and idleness comes up again and again and again of being lazy or being diligent, of being irresponsible or being responsible, of working or of bludging. It was obviously an issue for that church, uh, which is interesting because it's a church that actually Paul speaks really highly of, a church growing in faith and love for one another and a church that's enduring persecution. And if it's a danger for a church like them, I think it's also a danger for a church like us. Uh, particularly in a culture where responsibility is constantly being eroded. It's irresponsibility and laziness increasingly go unchallenged and it's just normal of how Australians live. Well, let's dive in. Uh, At the start of his letter, where have we come from? Uh, Paul had encouraged the church to hang in there uh, they're being, being persecuted, being attacked, being given a hard time. And Paul said, hang in there. And he prayed that God would empower them to live godly lives that bring glory to the reputation of Jesus. That's the goal. Glory for the reputation of Jesus by the way we live. In the middle of his letter, in chapter 2, uh, Paul said, don't be troubled by lies and false teachings. Uh, People had said, hey guys, Jesus has already come, he's gone, you've missed out, you've missed the boat. Paul says, no, don't be alarmed, you weren't left behind, don't give up hope. And here at the end of the letter, he gives some parting instructions. The first thing he says is that we need to pray because we're in a battle. Got that? Point one, pray because this is a battle. Have a look at verse one. As for other matters, brothers and sisters, pray for us that the message of the Lord may spread rapidly and be honoured just as it was with you. Pray that we may be delivered from wicked and evil people, for not everyone has faith. But the Lord is faithful, 
and he will strengthen you and protect you from the evil one. Now, I've never been on a cruise ship before, uh, but after Googling the news of the cruise liner, uh, I keep getting all these ads for cruises over and over again in my feed. Um, and I had a look at some of these boats, and man, they look incredible. You know, these incredible restaurants and bars, and they've got these concert halls and saunas and water slides and arcade games. Sounds pretty cool, doesn't it, kids? It looks pretty amazing. And I imagine if you worked on a cruise ship, I imagine that, you know, pretty much your job is to just make sure everyone's comfortable and happy. You know, at the end of the day, if a cruise means that everyone's comfortable and happy when they get off the ship, you've done your job. It's pretty good. But it seems like the church in Thessalonia were kind of on cruise ship mode. Now, see, a cruise ship's quite different to working on a battleship, isn't it? Because working on a battleship, keeping people comfortable and happy has absolutely nothing to do with what your job is. See, Paul wants to remind the Thessalonian church that following Jesus is no pleasure cruise. It's easy for us, isn't it? I mean, we've, we've got it pretty good here. We're not under the same kind of attack or persecution that the Thessalonian church was under. This is so easy for us to slip into that ongoing, comfortable, pleasure cruise mode. So easy for us to think that following Jesus, the goal is comfort. It's easy for us to think that as a church, our kind of job is to kind of keep each other happy and comfortable. But we know that Jesus didn't leave us here on earth so that we could keep comfortable. If Jesus' goal for us immediately was that we'd be comfortable, he would have just taken us straight to heaven. No, as Danny showed us in chapters 1 and 2, Jesus left us here to live lives worthy of the calling that we've received, to do good works, to endure suffering, to stand firm and to bring him glory by the way that we live. Now, I don't know about you, but I reckon if I was on a uh, battleship, I'd probably pray a bit more than if I was on a cruise liner. I think I'd probably be a little bit more aware of the fact that actually I kind of need God. <laughs> it's not that I don't on a cruise ship. It's just that I'm easy to forget. See, Paul says we need to pray because there is a battle that is going on, a spiritual battle that we're in the midst of. Evil people are opposing Christ and his kingdom. Actually, Satan himself is the number one enemy. We pray because this is a battle. What do we pray, verse 1? That the message of the Lord may spread rapidly and be honoured. You know, actually, that's, that's kind of an amazing summary of what Christian mission, what the goal of Christian mission is. What is the goal of all Christian mission? That the message of Jesus spreads and is honoured. Well, we kind of know what it looks like for it to spread, but what does it mean that it's honoured? It means that people hear it and recognise that it is true 
and they give their lives to Jesus. That they then live lives that glorify him. See, Paul is saying pray that the message will spread and be honoured because people can't honour the message if they haven't heard it. People can't be saved unless they believe it. And people, the message can't spread if the messengers are taken out of the battle. Now, our link missionaries are in battle. Jack and Lil Haradine in the outback, well, they contend with all sorts of friction and tension uh, from, from people within the Aboriginal community. Lauren at Hull at Flinders, uh, constantly our Christian groups are under, under attack from faculty. The Rose in Cape Town, well, they've just had to take extended leave here to rest because they've taken some hits over the years. And you and I are in the battle. We think we're on the cruise ship, but we're not. See, our parents sometimes, our spouses sometimes, our kids sometimes, our neighbours, our friends, our colleagues. Sometimes we are under fire. And we're always under fire from Satan. We need to pray for each other because this is a battle. We need to pray that the message will spread and be honoured and that we will be delivered. But there's a great promise here, isn't there? Have a look at verse 3. The Lord is faithful and he will strengthen you and protect you from the evil one. There's a funny thing, isn't it, as Christians? If you end up dead... It doesn't seem like you're protected, right? It kind of seems like you weren't protected when you end up dead. But the amazing thing as Christians is that our hope is not to have a nice long life here. Our hope is for after death. Our hope is for when Jesus comes back and raises us to life and puts us in the new creation and we live forever in a world that no longer is in battle, no longer is racked by sin and death, and sadness, and sickness, and pain, and suffering, and hurt, and violence. See, he is faithful. He will strengthen you. He will protect you from the evil one. Even if you die because of the battle. Because even in death, he protects and keeps us until the day Christ returns, when he will raise us up to new life. We pray because this is the battle. And then Paul gets to the iceberg. Point two, stay away from lazy Christians. Stay away from lazy Christians because we represent Jesus. See, because we've been a little bit too cruise ship for too long, here in Australia... Yeah, we have, haven't we? We haven't felt like we're in a battle most of the time. It's felt pretty cruisy to be a Christian for many generations in Australia. And so for us, I think Paul's commands here make us pretty uncomfortable. Have a look, verse 6. We command you, brothers and sisters, 
to keep away from every believer who is idle and disruptive and does not live according to the teaching you receive from us. Have a look at verse 14. Take special note of anyone who does not obey our instruction in this letter. Do not associate with them in order that they may feel ashamed. Now notice Paul's command here in the first instance there in verse 6. Paul doesn't deal with this issue by commanding the idle believer. Who's this command for? Well, it's for the Christians who aren't idle. There's a clear, strong, unambiguous language here that when a brother or sister sins, we can't just sit back, wash our hands of the matter and say, well, that's not my concern. See, when there's a brother or sister who sins, a brother or sister who's idle and disruptive, Paul speaks first to us and commands us to act. Way back at the beginning, Adam and Eve, the very first humans, after they sinned, we get to the next generation, their sons, Cain and Abel. They offered sacrifices to God and God was happy with Abel's sacrifice. He wasn't happy with Cain's sacrifice. Cain was so jealous, so mad, he murdered his brother. And then God comes and he, he comes and meets Cain. He says, oh, good day, Cain, how are you going? Hey, uh, where's your brother? And Cain says, am I my brother's keeper? Am I my brother's keeper? Am I supposed to know where he is? Am I, you know, is it, my, is it my business? Am I supposed to look after him? Well, what's the right answer? The answer is yes. Actually, yes, Cain, you are your brother's keeper. And you're supposed to be caring for him and actually you just, you just did the exact opposite and murdered him. See, it's not optional for us as Christians to sit back when we see a brother or sister sinning and go, that's, that's their thing, that's their issue, their deal, their problem, I don't need to do anything. We are our brother's keeper. And this command here, this command is quite striking. <laughs> Keep away from them. Do not associate with them. Why? Not just, to, not just to teach them, but actually to shame them. Now that feels really heavy, doesn't it? You know, we're people of grace. How does shame fit with grace? But if we read carefully, we see why. We see why this matters so much. Have a look again at verse 6, the very start of that, that verse. In the name of the Lord Jesus, we command you, brothers and sisters. Again, verse 12, such people we command and urge in the Lord Jesus Christ to settle down and earn the food they eat. See, like an Olympian carrying their country's flag or an ambassador representing their country's government, or a soldier wearing their country's uniform. We represent Jesus 
We bear the name of Christ. We are his Christians. We represent him. And as we saw back in in chapter 1 and verse 12 with Danny two weeks ago, our job as Christians who represent Jesus is to live lives that are worthy of representing Christ. Live lives that are worthy of carrying that name. To live lives that are worthy so that they bring glory to God. In his first letter to the Thessalonians, in in chapter 4 and verse 11, uh, Paul dealt with this issue again. Uh, Not quite as long, but uh, he said, Make it your ambition to lead a quiet life. You should mind your own business, work with your hands just as we told you. Verse 12, So that your daily life may win the respect of outsiders and so that you will not be dependent on anybody, so that your daily life will win the respect of outsiders, that you won't be dependent on anybody. See, Paul knows, doesn't he? It looks small on the surface, but the iceberg is big underneath because when unbelievers see idleness, laziness, irresponsibility, bludging, consuming within the church, it doesn't command respect. It doesn't lead them to glorify God and go, wow, look at those Christians. It looks as, wow, look at those Christians. What? They're not that great a bunch. I just want to pause and say, here Paul is not talking about people who can't work. Paul's talking about people who won't work, who could but don't, who mooch off others, people who expect that other people will carry the load and the burden and they can just coast along. Now, over the past 20 years of doing ministry uh, with young adults, I've been surprised to see how many of them still live at home, you know, these, these kind of 30-somethings who still live at home. Now, there's totally appropriate reasons why, you know, 30-somethings can still live at home. What I've noticed, though, is that there are some who live at home and, and they do nothing. They still act like they're a six-year-old. They don't contribute to the house. Uh, they, don't, they don't do any jobs. They, they don't do chores. They don't cook, their, they don't cook any meals. Some of them don't pay any board or they pay, you know, 20, 50 bucks a week, you know, just a token. And some of them are, you know, just time and time again. Some of them have jobs, but where does the income go? A lot of the income just kind of goes on themselves. A lot of the income goes into holidays and leisure and clothes and cafes and see a 30-something who doesn't know how to operate a washing machine doesn't really command the respect of outsiders. When outsiders see someone bearing the name of Christ who can't operate a washing machine because they've never tried, they've never offered to help, they've never learned to grow up and take responsibility, they think, well, actually, that's not a very good look 
to Jesus. But you know, actually, in this scenario, the 30-something isn't the only one who is actually bringing shame here. See, who's enabled them? Who's been washing their clothes for 30 years? Who's not laid down the groundwork and the ground rules that, that say, actually, no, you must step up and you must take responsibility. You must man up and contribute to this family. Who's failed to train them to be responsible and hardworking and who continues to treat them like a kid and do everything for them? It's parents, of course, isn't it? See, if within the family of people who bear Christ's name, if within the church, this church, any church, this church, if there are believers within the church who are capable of working but don't, who bludge off their families or the government or the church, and if we as the church, as the family of God, if we enable them to keep doing that, we keep treating each other like children and not saying, hey, actually, you know what? This isn't right. You need to take responsibility. You need to work. You need to contribute. You need to stop being a burden on others. Then actually, it's not just them who is bringing shame. It's actually all of us for enabling it to happen, for building a culture where that's acceptable and okay. The iceberg might seem small on the surface, but laziness and irresponsibility within the church, just like any sin that we turn a blind eye to, is a big deal because it doesn't honour and glorify Christ. You know, actually, in the eight chapters, it's not a lot, only eight chapters in 1 and 2 Thessalonians, 27 times Paul mentions work. Five times he draws attention to the way he worked among them and the example he set. This is in addition to the 27. And then another five times he talks about people taking advantage of someone else, being a burden to someone else. This kind of idle advantage-taking is a big deal because it dishonours Christ's reputation. It hinders the spread of the gospel. It hardens outsiders. It harms the individual and it harms the church. And that's why Paul's command to distance ourselves, dissociate ourselves and, and to shame that person is entirely appropriate because that's something we should feel shame for. We should feel shame for bringing dishonour to the name of Christ, for not living worthy lives that bring him glory. The idle believer needs to see that this is not appropriate. The world outside needs to see that it's not appropriate for the people who bear Christ's name and, and we as the church need to see that laziness and bludging is not appropriate for those who bear the name of Jesus. Now I realise that as a leader in God's church, I need to take the lead in this. Um, over the years, I, I have encouraged and urged and you know, quite you know, plainly told you know, a number of individuals 
uh, that they need to take responsibility, get off their backsides and get a job and contribute. And But I confess I've, I've not ever actually taken the next step. I've never actually done what Paul here commands. And that's a failure as a Christian, but it's even more a failure as a, a leader in God's church. And so I realise actually that I've been an enabler. Anytime I, I, I turn a blind eye or I, I, I don't take this action, when I see a believer who is who's idle, who's irresponsible, or a believer who's sinning in any way, I've actually kind of implicitly said it's not that big a deal. It doesn't really matter. I've kind of enabled it. And I've actually brought shame to the name of Christ. I want to say today is a new day. We need to be a church that loves each other enough to do what God commands. Actually, we need to love God enough that we do what he commands. We need to love the honour of Christ's name and the spread of the gospel. And we need to honour the lost enough that we say, no, we we will be obedient. We will take this seriously. We are our brother's keepers and our sister's keepers. We will be a sin, a church who takes sin and grace and glorifying Jesus seriously. And even though that might seem harsh, actually verse 5 shows us that this is what God's love and Christ's perseverance in us looks like. Love is what motivates it. Helping one another persevere to the end so that we reach the prize. That is what motivates it. See, I think part of the reason we see it as harsh and as hard and confronting and scary is that we actually don't see it done very well or very often. And we all know stories of really legalistic churches, don't we? where the believer who sins is just condemned as an enemy, where grace seems to fall by the wayside. But that's not God's way. Have a look at verse 15, second half. Paul said, Do not associate with them in order that they may feel ashamed. Verse 15, Yet, yet, do not regard them as an enemy, but warn them as you would a fellow believer. Point three. You ready, kids? Warn them because they are your family. Warn them because they are your family. See, the shame here is not and must not be an overbearing shame. We don't shame like the world shames. We, we, we warn and shame as brothers and sisters because we want them to come to repentance. We want them to come to grace and to freedom and the joy of honouring Christ, and and we want to see Christ honoured. See, Christian shame is not like the world's crushing shame that cancels and condemns and drives away. It's it's the shame that, that warns and rebukes and invites back. We warn because they're our family. What do we warn them? Verse 12. To settle down and eat the food, uh, earn the food that they eat. Verse 13, all of us never tire 
of what's doing, of doing what is good. I'm going to just take a couple of minutes just to kind of apply this to us at different stages in life. First, I just want to say to parents, I'm, I'm talking to parents. Are you training, nurturing, raising lazy and entitled kids? There have been times Keely and I have realised, actually, we kind of are. You know, when they're six and we realise that we're still doing everything for them like we did when they were six months. We go, oh, actually, we need to teach them responsibility. We need to give them jobs. We, and then as they keep growing, we actually, to love them, we need to give them more and more responsibility as we also give them more and more freedom. Actually, we in our family, we don't even give our kids pocket money because... I'm convinced that if we just gave them pocket money, uh, they'd never bother doing any work for any money and they, they wouldn't appreciate what they've got. So we actually make our kids, if, if they want to buy something, they need to work, do some chores, get paid. And then even that money that they get paid, they, they, they also have to learn how to deal with that responsibility and half of it goes into their spending and then out of the other half, a quarter of that, go, uh, sorry, uh, half of that goes into their savings and half of that goes to giving. Teaching responsibility? Are you teaching responsibility so your kids will grow up as Christians who give glory to God? Now, kids, I just want you to just, just hold your pencils for a second. Ever, kids, everyone look up for a sec. Youth, I'm talking to you guys. What kind of kid do you reckon Jesus was? What do you reckon? Good one, yeah. What, what, what do you reckon when his mum and dad asked him to tidy his room or his dad asked him to, you know, take out the rubbish or, or carry in the fire? What do, what do you reckon Jesus did? I reckon he did it. What do you reckon maybe, you know, as he was sort of walking past the sink and noticed there was a pile of dirty dishes and, and you know, what do you reckon he did then? Grace. I reckon he probably did it. Now I want to say to you kids... If you don't have chores around the home, make sure that changes today. Go home and say, on the way home in the car, say to mum and dad, if you don't have chores, or maybe you think you've got some chores, but actually you don't have many chores and you could contribute a bit more around the house, say to mum and dad, actually, I need some chores. I need more chores. I want to contribute. I want to be responsible. I want to help out in this family. And maybe if you're a bit slack at school, maybe you don't focus on your work in the classroom or you rush your homework or you skip your homework. Work hard. Do your best. And maybe when you're at church and you, you see people packing the chairs, you know who I want you to imitate? My big little buddy, Harry Watts. Be, jump in. Help out. If you're not sure what to do, you can ask someone. When, you, when you're at home and, and you, you know, you've finished your, you finished your homework and, you know, you've had your afternoon tea and you haven't had your screen time yet, before you ask for your screen time, go and say to mum or dad, hey mum, is there anything I can do to help you out? Be responsible. And young adults, now I'm talking to you. Kids, you can colour again. But you will be young adults, so keep listening. Young adults, I want to encourage you. 
I, I want to ask you, actually, are you busying yourself with worldly pursuits? Are you busy honouring Christ or are you busy living your best life now? I see more and more young adults blow their 20s and even their 30s in travel, maybe in perpetual study, just kind of putting off that kind of adulting. When you finish uni and you actually have to do a job and, and work and, and all that stuff. Do you have kind of an idolatry of leisure? Yeah? Is your lifestyle winning the respect of outsiders and honouring Christ? Now, to those of you who are jobless and genuinely looking for a job, I'm not talking to you. Brother, sister, I know, I've been there. I know how discouraging it is. We want to encourage you. Keep praying, keep searching, and actually put a prayer request on the prayer network so that we can be praying for you as well. But if you're someone who's unnecessarily unemployed, you should be working, but you're not, you're not genuinely working, looking for work. Jesus says, settle down and earn the food that you eat. Maybe you're just kind of hanging back and waiting for the perfect job to fall on your lap. It's not going to. Get on the internet, get on seek, get looking. Until you get a job, your full-time job is finding a job. Or maybe I've seen this again and again with really bright young people who come through uni, who ace their degree, and then... For years and years, they don't work. And they're waiting for the perfect job. They're waiting for the job that, that, you know, excites them. And so they skip over and pass over perfectly good jobs. Actually, it doesn't matter if you get the perfect job. It doesn't exist. Ever since Adam and Eve ate the fruit, you know what work is? Even the best work? It's toil, it's thorns, it's thistles, it's painful. Even if you, f- you turn your hobby into a job, it soon becomes pretty dull. Just get going and work for the Lord. Or maybe you're busying yourself with other things, good things. Say, well, I can't work because it would mean I couldn't do this volunteering and all this sort of stuff. Well, actually, your job... If you, are, if you are not supporting yourself, that's not good. That's not responsible. That's not honouring God. And maybe if you're someone who's always looking for a free ride or a handout or to kind of wring and squeeze every dollar to maximise the most. And, and I mean, we, we received the normal parenting payments that, that any parents do and, and, and as a pastor, you know, we've been offered a discount for having Josiah here at Cornerstone, uh, which is, we couldn't afford to otherwise, but, but we don't look for ways to kind of play the system or to squeeze what, you know, we can, you can squeeze benefits that maybe legally you're entitled to claim, but actually morally we shouldn't. And sometimes we can expect of other Christians, of tradesmen, you know, I've, I've heard of poor Christian tradesmen who other Christians just expect them 
to work for less than their rate, for less than what they can actually afford to live off. And we have to ask ourselves the question, are we really being godly stewards of money? Is trying to squeeze every benefit out of the smallest amount possible, is being tight and frugal, is that what honouring God with money is? Or is it just ripping other people off? We need to ask in every situation, am I loving my neighbour and am I bringing honour to Christ? And maybe you are employed. Are you diligent and hardworking? Do your colleagues and your boss or your employees look at you and think, wow, I really can't fault Samantha. You know, actually don't tell HR, but I think I'm only going to hire Christians from now on. homemakers it's not an easy job but it is possible to kind of do the bare minimum isn't it are we honoring god but what about those who have a genuine right to help verse 9 paul says that those who work hard in the lord actually do have a right to be to be supported by the church to continue that work in 1 timothy 5 the elders who direct the affairs of the church well are worthy of double honor especially those whose works preach and teach. Scripture says, don't muzzle an ox while it's treading out the grain. The worker deserves his wages. And I wonder, actually, if outsiders looked in at our budget this year and our giving this year, would it win respect? If, if outsiders looked in and see that some of us are incredibly generous and, and some of us actually kind of come and receive and consume, but don't actually contribute towards our our church, to our family budget, who eat the spiritual food that others supply. Would that honour God? Does it honour God when we say there's nothing more important than making disciples and seeing the word of God spread and honoured and raising and training and sending workers to do that? But then we actually don't make personal sacrifices in our own lifestyles, in our own holidays, in our own home improvement plans or our our grocery lists or our streaming subscriptions or we don't make sacrifices to make that happen. Does that honour God? And would it honour God and win respect with outsiders if they looked in and saw that as a church family, we together agreed and made a commitment to raise up a gospel worker, to employ a gospel worker. And then we didn't actually meet that responsibility and had to let Danny go after a year. See, are we as a church being responsible and honouring God?